1: Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Danny in the Valley, the Sunday Times tech podcast, where every week I sit down with somebody way smarter than me to talk about what it is they're up to, whether that be bizarre or scary or hopefully always interesting to you, dear listener. I've got a great show for you this week, but before we get there, I just wanted to give you a little heads up about next week. I sat down with a fascinating company called Finless Foods. It's kind of a weird name, but they're actually doing what it says on the tin. They are growing fish meat in a lab. It's not growing fish, fish meat as a way to deal with the, all the overfishing issues and the destruction of our oceans, et cetera. So perhaps someday soon you will be eating a filet of salmon that was actually manufactured in a test tube. Or actually, the way they do it, they ferment it in breweries. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. So that is next week. The only other thing I have to give you a heads up about, there is a bad word in this episode. The S word. Keep an eye out for it. I know this is a family show, so hopefully not a big deal. Anyhow, on to today's show. Yo, technology. What is it all about?
2: the biggest thing that you have to always stay with you when you are trying to think about the future is prepare to be surprised. Just imagining the things that you can imagine, you will always miss things that, in retrospect, seem quite obvious.
1: That was Tim O'Reilly, this week's guest. If you don't know, Tim is kind of like the Oracle of Silicon Valley. He's been in the industry since the late 70s. He started out publishing computer manuals when people were still trying to figure out what a computer was. Um, He has since kind of created a publishing empire. He is also a part-time investor. Um, He is a towering presence out here, and he has a knack for predicting the future, or at least pointing us in the direction of where things are headed. So he coined the term Web 2.0 coined the term open source software and he has just written a book called WTF and that's not what you think it means it's actually what's the future Um, so he talks about the state of technology today where it's headed and whether we should be worried and the answer is yes Um, but perhaps not for the reasons that you think he's got amazing insights it's well worth um, taking the time to listen because um, he'll make you think So without further ado, I give you Tim.
2: The public is waking up to the fact that the tech industry, while it's been giving them all these wonderful services for free, does not entirely have their best interests at heart. This is perhaps a watershed year. We'll see. I think the public is probably still more positive about tech than regulators are, and many uh, of the regulatory pushbacks are probably going to be looked back as mistakes. But I do think, you know, my concern for how tech would be swept up in this broader wave of populism and become a villain was something I saw coming, and it was, in fact, one of the reasons why I wrote the book. My goal was twofold. One was to Educate the public and policymakers about how a lot of tech platforms really work and to put them in a broader context and to draw Lessons from the tech platforms for the economy because it seems to me that there are many many ways in which technology mirrors our society and and there are things that people can be led to see Through the lens of tech that they can then turn around and say oh That same thing is at play across our society as a whole. But I also wrote it for the tech industry. It seems to me that we've had a set of people who are blindly amplifying the distaste for tech through their behavior, through the way they talk about what they do, through the way they think, and through their business practices. I was hoping to use whatever influence I have to wake the tech industry up to what they're doing wrong. There's a a profound lack of perspective. They uh, live in a world of incredible privilege. They pat themselves on the back for things that are actually fairly serious economic distortions. They're the recipients of this incredible largesse from the rest of society that they think that they have earned. I should say that we think that we have earned because I'm part of that industry. I think it's really important to own up to our responsibility for a lot of the things that have gone wrong. I just see these mirrors. You know, people can say, oh, yeah, look what happened when Microsoft took the PC from being an inclusive economy with lots of opportunity for everyone to an economy where they got most of the value for one company. What happened? Hold on. Let me say, (laughs) I, I can say, oh, look, it's happening again with Google and Facebook where The web was an inclusive economy with lots of opportunity for everyone. And now some companies have become dominant or taking all the value for themselves. And you kind of hope that people can say, oh, those economies became much less vibrant. There was much less opportunity, you know, return to a few winners while everybody else went, there's really no more opportunity here. And guess what? Oh, wait, we see that pattern in our broader society. Similarly, I hope that people could see, oh, okay, this is the way that algorithmic systems work. And now, through Facebook and fake news, we can understand how algorithms can go wrong. They're a little bit like the genies of Arabian mythology. You give them your wish, but you don't express it quite right, and there are these unintended consequences that can go disastrously awry. And you go, oh, wait. Our financial markets are also increasingly infused with digital with algorithms that are really single point of failure, but single point of optimization, which is the same thing, where he's saying relentlessly optimize for financial outcomes, just as Facebook thought that relentlessly optimizing for what users liked would give them people better connections, and they were wrong. We thought that relentlessly optimizing for share price would make the economy healthier. And now we know that it didn't. And yet, while we're, we're holding Facebook accountable, I don't think we're really holding our policymakers accountable to saying, you've got the master algorithm wrong. Technology effectively rewrites our map of the world. You know, It changes our expectations about what's possible. So in a similar way, I want to apply that to our whole society. Why are we still organizing our society the way they organized it? You know, the British organized their empire in the 18th and 19th century with this sort of vast bureaucracy and and sort of paper-based processes. And what are we going to do differently when we have a society that's infused with technology? What are we going to do differently when we realize the technologies of the 21st century are going to make... Changes as profound as those that came with the Industrial Revolution. Will we basically choose to make everyone more prosperous? And I think right now we're on the wrong path there. The first thing we have to do if we want to believe something different, if we want to make something different, we have to believe something different.
1: You're biting off a lot there. I am biting off a lot, (laughs) no question. (laughs) But you speak to the the people who run these companies that you're talking about do you get a sense that the worm has turned with them that if you talk to i don't know jeff bezos or mark zuckerberg or the google guys where there is this recognition of we do need to be more self-aware or we do live in a bubble and we really need to think pretty dramatically differently about how we create these things then propagate out into the world and have all of these consequences that We may be the smartest people around but we just didn't foresee.
2: I think there are pockets of that awareness. There are certainly many people within these big companies that are thinking very, very hard about these issues. At the CEO level, it's much less evenly distributed, singularitarians, so to speak among the tech elite.
1: I mean believers in singularity? Yeah,
2: believers in the singularity. And it's just yeah. like if we just kind of put the pedal to the metal, all these wonderful things will happen. And, but there are clearly people who are choosing to do the right thing. There's a narrative that's coming out. And it's not just from the U.S. I think Jack Ma at Alibaba has been an, an incredible spokesperson for this idea of the need for tech platforms to create wealth for the, for the participants in the platform, not for, just for them to There certainly are companies that are doing the kinds of things that will make people wealthier. One of the fundamental myths that I try to attack is the idea that technology should be used to reduce costs and do the same thing more cheaply. The rise of the machines idea. Yeah, you know, this idea that somehow the machines are going to take away jobs. It's blind to history and is blind also to the secret superpower of technology, which has always been to do more, to do things that you couldn't do before. So I try to tell a story of companies that are acting that way. You look at our great entrepreneurs of our age, they really are doing the impossible. Elon Musk not only created a... Uh, the mass market electric vehicle. He put in this network of superchargers to replace the gas stations, so that they could go long distances. These are solar powered. He's sort of thinking big. So even though, you know, he's working to make this very successful business, he's also working from a set of values about the kinds of 21st century transformation that, that is needed. Similarly, you know, we need to get into space. You know, let's go work on that. Oh, humans are going to need to interface better with machines. Let's go work on that. And then at sort of at a humbler level, but probably even more impactful, you look at someone like Jeff Bezos. You know, he's sitting there going, we're putting robots into the warehouses, but we're not doing the same thing more cheaply with robots. We're upping the ante. How long ago was it that you got your packages shipped from a warehouse and it took a week? now if you get
1: anything in a week it makes kind yeah of exactly. inspires anger
2: <laughs> that's, that's right amazon you know routinely for many products in many areas same day and guess what happens they put in lots of robots and they've hired even more people because there's this virtuous circle that when you do more you put people to work and so again i'm trying to say okay here's a lesson from tech if you have a company take that lesson don't say wow as, as one investor said to me I have this new technology that will eliminate 30% of call center jobs. Say, wait a minute, I have this new technology that will make give our call center people superpowers so they can give amazing customer service so that we'll get more customers, uh, we'll grow our business. A bunch of core business lessons that are also need to be then taken to the broader economy. We need leadership to tackle these great problems that we face as a society. Let's use all the tools at our disposal problems that seemed insoluble before.
1: The reason I asked if you thought that there was this kind of genuine awakening amongst the CEOs and whatnot is because, and I've mentioned this before, but I was at this Google event where they launched a bunch of new hardware. And one of the things around Google Home was like, uh, we could recognize up to six different voices, including your kids. We're the only AI that can actually recognize children's lexicons and respond accordingly, et cetera. They unveiled this rapturous applause in the crowd. And I just remember thinking, so wait, Google wants to kind of start building a profile of my child as soon as they can speak. There was no kind of pause from the company or kind of acknowledgement of like, I know what you're thinking, but these are the protections we will put in place.
2: I do think it's very possible to characterize these things as sinister, cynical behaviors that are purely profit-seeking great Silicon Valley companies are thinking, I really am trying to do this thing that will make this great user experience for my customers. But they are sometimes forgetting other parts of the picture. You know, Apple, I think, has probably taken the strongest stance, for example, on privacy, you know, where they've said, well, this is actually a competitive advantage for us. We don't have a database business model. So, you know, it's not like just idealism. It's sometimes this is is who you are. And Google is the big data company. And they're still kind of saying, well, as long as we're making these services work for you, don't worry. And there's a lot of truth to that, quite honestly. You know, like I think about China, where they have pretty serious surveillance state in place, AI enabled face recognition, and you've got companies that are actually cooperating by uploading all their profiles to the government, you know, I don't think that, you know, at least right now, that Google would be cooperating with a a system like that. They do have this idea that, well, you know, we're using our knowledge of your behavior and who you are and what you do on your behalf. It's very powerful. It's a powerful path to the future. And the question you're asking is, should they be thinking harder about safeguards? Absolutely. A lot of our thinking about safeguards is some Maginot line thinking. What we find again and again is that the kinds of thinking that we put in place to defend against the attacks that we imagine turn out not really to be the vector by which the attack comes in. Think about the Russian hacking of social media. You know, everybody was thinking cyber warfare, they're going to, you know, hack the algorithm, they'll hack the data. It was quite a low grade. It was very low grade. They basically (laughs) used some bots to masquerade as users, and then real users took up the content and spread it themselves. So it was our brains that were being hacked. I guess what I'm concerned about with all of the fear-mongering about AI, the fear-mongering about security in the future, we will put in place a kind of security theater That's a lot like what we've done in our airports. We're spending hundreds of billions of dollars to make you feel good like we're doing something. We need to figure out how to make our systems more responsive to threats. We need to understand better how to respond. I think that's one of the really interesting lessons of the fake news. It's one of the lessons if you look back at Google search quality, which has been kind of happening longer. There are always going to be people who are trying to game the system whatever the system is. So the system has to become better at noticing and adapting. In a lot of these cases, these systems are. The question is, are they thinking about all of the attacks? For example, are they thinking, well, what's our response to the attacks by government? There's a lot of work on practical countermeasures. You know, you know, when you think about self-driving cars, the researchers are going, okay, how are people going to game this system? How are they going to, you know, again, this, there's been researchers who are, hacking road signs to confuse self-driving cars is there's all kinds of interesting research that are all about trying to make the system more robust and I do talk in my book a little bit about a famous story from the early days of jet aviation the de Havilland comet which was the first jet airliner mysteriously fell out of the sky you know they basically determined it was metal fatigue and then they were like we've reinforced it so there will be no cracks. And of course, they kept falling out of the sky. And then this young engineer at Boeing was like, no, we, you know, which before Boeing was Boeing, you know, or at least before they had become the dominant force in commercial jet aviation was like, no, we actually just have to keep the cracks from propagating. It was make them more flexible, make them more responsive. I think that that's sort of a really good metaphor for the kinds of systems that we need to build. So much of what's being called for seems to me to be attempts to make the systems more brittle.
1: Could we just go back, just because I think the the context from which you are speaking is worth just talking, touching on briefly, because obviously you're very well-known here, but yeah. we have a lot of listeners overseas. You've been at this since 1980. So if you could just give a very brief kind of potted history. You've done lots of different stuff going back to then, but it would be good just to give yeah. people a sense of... Yeah, uh,
2: I started my company in 1978 as a uh, technical writing consulting company. Around 1984, we started writing our own books uh, that were just on emerging technologies, things like that computer manuals, computer man, yes, computer manuals for the technologies that really turned out to become the internet, the open source movement. You know, In our spare time, we said, oh, there's no manual for <laughs> such and such. And we wrote them. By 2000, Publishers Weekly had the cover that said the internet was built with O'Reilly books. So we played a big role in the, in the commercialization of the internet. Probably the biggest thing we did, though, was in 1992, we published the first popular book on the internet, we created a product called Internet in the Box, which was getting people onto the net. But we also created the first commercial website, GNN, the Global Network Navigator, precursor to Yahoo. It was the first ad-supported site on the net. You know, I became really an activist for open standards of, of the internet, of open source software. In 1998, I convened a meeting where the term open source was formally adopted by a, a, a small group of, of uh, free software developers who would develop things like Linux and programming languages like Python and Perl and, and things that people didn't even think of as open source, things like the domain name system, which is maintained by a single guy. You know? <laughs> it really told a story about how the internet wasn't this new movement of, of crazy guys who were against commercial software. It was like, no, you're all depending on it in a commercial context. It, it's really just a set of people who are building software out on the fringes for things that weren't commercialized yet with a different set of values. And those values, I think, we tried to carry through. The other thing that I did from an activism point of view was after the dot-com bust, I tried to tell a story about why some companies had survived and others had failed. And that led to what was called Web 2.0, where I was really talking about that it was about big data, it was about collective intelligence, Uh, We were moving from the the style of software that we had in the PC era to software that was what we now call cloud computing. And as a way of saying, hey, despite the dot-com bust, the web is not over. My company also put out a magazine called Make and a a starting event called Maker Faire, which really kicked off what's called the maker movement. So we're kind of activists for the future. Coming back to my book, that's been the context. I'm trying to do that again, saying there's a set of principles that are being used to drive the great technology companies of the future. Their platforms. They're algorithmically managed. What does this mean for society? What lessons can we take that we can apply to businesses, and what lessons can we take and apply to policymakers?
1: King. But you're an optimist.
2: A lot of people say that. They, they read the book and they go, it's so optimistic. And, <laughs> and, and I guess what I would say is I'm not, actually, Reid Hoffman had a great line the other night at an event. He said, I'm, I'm a techno-optimist, but I'm not a techno-utopian. But I would say something a little stronger than that. I am an optimist about the ability of humanity to make good choices. Yeah, you know, We go through long periods of making really bad choices, and then we get it right. I'm not an optimist as in everything's going swimmingly. We're facing some really big challenges that we have to rise to. And if we don't rise to them, they will crush us. But I'm op- optimistic because I've seen in the past when that has happened that we have risen to them. It's this wonderful piece by Wal Stevens who talks about realism versus the imagination. He said that, you know, but then the tragedy begins again in the imagination's new beginning. In the yes of the realist uh, spoken because he must say yes. Because beneath every no lay a yes that had never been broken. And that that unbroken human spirit is what I have optimism for. I actually tried to weave in some stories from the past. and, And one that in particular I think is very relevant is the two great world wars of the 20th century. After the first world war, society made terrible decisions penalize the losers, continue to amplify income inequality, you know, with this enormous stock market crash. Planting uh, the seeds. Great, great depression, you know, and we end up with a do-over, you know, with another terrible world war. And after the second world war, you go, oh my god, they made so much better decisions. You know, rebuild the lands uh, of the former enemies. Invest in the future. Take those returning veterans instead of making them homeless. Send them to school. Buy farms. We just did all of these things that were focused on putting people to work, rebuilding. And we ended a period of seven years of prosperity. You see a lesson that, again, we see also from technology, which is when you optimize for one thing long enough, the system gets gamed, the system gets out of whack, and you need to make changes. And of course, after some period of time, that system got cracks. We did a reverse set of optimizations. Think about the 70s, where we had massive inflation, because basically we'd been optimizing for full employment. And then suddenly we're like, well, we're going to optimize for low inflation, for return to capital. And we did a set of optimizations there, and now we're there. Those are broken down. You know, we're seeing all of this hollowing out of the economy. You know, the wealth was very unevenly distributed, and it's just time for another reset. We've shown before that we can make a reset, and in particular, we've shown that it does not have to come from some central planning. You know, a great other story I, I advert to in the context of education is the the, the high school movement in America. In the early 20th century, we went from something like 9% of teenagers in high school in 1909 to 70% by 1935 and 80% by 1950.
1: It was an experiment of expediency, wasn't it? That's
2: right. It was an experiment. It started in Massachusetts, spread to Iowa. Uh, and basically, the, it was actually the farm belt states that really drove it, where they were like, whoa, our kids aren't going to be needed on the farm. We have to train them for the jobs of the future. And I go, holy cow, we're at one of those moments again. Do we have the courage to tax ourselves, You know, invest in children? It's not looking good. But the reason I'm optimistic is because I think after we flail around, we can, in fact, realize that we've been doing the wrong thing and make better choices. Hopefully, we avoid World War III before we get there. I do think that we're in a very tumultuous period. The thing is, though, tumultuous periods are periods of enormous creativity. You know, When you look at the populist movements like Brexit and the the election of Donald Trump, they're really a rejection of the status quo. A huge part of our politics has been about trying to maintain a status quo rather than questioning it. So yeah, we've now broken that in a way that actually takes the energy of people who are dissatisfied and then uses it to reinforce the status quo, actually. We're now in an unstable state, uh, which is this incredible opportunity uh, to make it better. You're
1: talking about effectively a kind of a whole, I mean, stepping back from tech, A kind of societal, political, economic reset. So what is the role of tech in that? Knowing the kind of leaders of these, you know, because the internet is effectively two companies now.
2: I don't actually believe that.
1: You don't. So Facebook and Google, they take whatever, 90 plus percent of incremental ad revenue
2: online. Right. One of the things that that tells you is how much we have come to believe that advertising is the industry that matters. And advertising is an element of this consumer culture, which is one of the things that may have to go away as we come into a world of massive climate change impacts, resulting warfare, refugee movements. I mean, there's already 65 million displaced people around the world. That's going to be hundreds of millions. You know, we're going to be effectively having to rebuild and move cities. And I can easily see that we're going to have a moment like we had in World War II, where you know Roosevelt came in and said, sorry, you're not making cars anymore, you're making tanks. We will be saying, oh, wait, advertising, getting people to buy stuff? What's advertising is gonna be for is telling people that they're gonna have to improve their energy hygiene. And, <laughs> and uh, we're just facing some enormous changes. And again, the question is when this happens. You know, there's going to be a lot of pressures that are going to change the economy. We got some serious stuff coming at us. We also have these amazing new capabilities that will allow us to build a better world. When I hear this narrative that the robots are going to take all the jobs, I go, look around. There's so much work to do that we're not getting to. What is it that's keeping us from getting to that work? And a big part of it is the structure of our companies, the incentives we give them, who's actually driving the bus. You know, in other words, we're basically looking to optimize return to shareholders rather than necessarily return to customers, return to suppliers. There's all kinds of other participants. And companies are starting to realize that there are opportunities to actually serve different constituencies. But I think also, as I say, there are entrepreneurs who are realizing that the way to build a great business is to solve a hard problem. And I think we're going to see the need for more of those kinds of entrepreneurs and fewer of the kinds of entrepreneurs who think that their job is to sell people stuff they don't really need by getting better and better at manipulating them. Uh, To that point, if we think about the kind
1: of the hot tech thing of the day, which is blockchain are you a believer in the transformative potential of that cuz when you talk to people in that world in the cryptocurrency world bitcoin ethereum etc and talk about blockchain technology this idea that we can kind of decentralize everything and do away with these middlemen like banks yeah. big structures that are you know at the heart of this all these systems that you're talking about I don't see it because when you talk to people it's they they speak about it with a It's almost fanatical, like, this is the future.
2: Well, I think there's a lot of interesting futures there, no question. But I've heard that story before. You know, (laughs) it it was was the story of the personal computer, you know, when it was like anybody could have one. It was the story of the World Wide Web. Anybody could, you know, have a website. It was the story of blogging, which was sort of anybody could be a publisher. Within 10 or 15 years at the outside, there was a reconcentration of power. Look at Bitcoin. The majority of all Bitcoin is held by a very small number of parties. It's just as concentrated as the web already. There's a democratizing potential for the internet and there's a, a way that we have realized some of that. There's also this amazing countervailing force. And actually I have to say, you know, if you compare the fundamental decentralization of the web, you know, you commoditize one thing and something else becomes valuable. The thing I would say there is that the centralizing force of the web was big data, which for all its risks was also a source of enormous new benefit. As far as I can see, the centralizing force, this undermining the democratization promised by cryptocurrencies is the enormous energy use and the energy cost. That's actually a waste. Now, maybe somebody will solve that problem and figure out how to do it in a more efficient way. What's interesting to me about this sort of sine wave of openness and then reconcentration is that in each case, we actually advance the state of the art, just as Microsoft understood a bunch of things about software that IBM didn't, and then Google understood a bunch of things about data that Microsoft didn't. It's not clear to me yet what that positive, social, concentrating force. I always see wonderful things in decentralizing forces. And they always lead to innovation. But the question is, is new value also created by the concentrating force, even as it sucks the life out of the of the other <laughs> ecosystem? And again, I'm, I'm not clear what that is. When I think about the technology of the future, I do think blockchain potentially has some really, really interesting applications. And, and I should qualify by saying I'm not super deep into that world. But when I think about the next technology revolution, it is basically it's in AI used on biology. Diagnostics and things like that. Well, it, could, it. Be, it could be diagnostics. It could be creation of new life forms. I'm sorry? Creation of new life forms. I think that there's certainly a possible future in which there are many, many different species of humans. I think it's far more likely, you know, people different have this idea. species of humans. What that? Even, I mean, what do you mean? There will be people who will be adapted to very, very different kinds of environments. Don't we already have that? Yeah, but we, we can have it much more extremely. I like think super duper. Like if you want something super far out, that's, yeah, that's that kind of super far out thing. The thing that we have to do more than anything else is we have to break the idea that the future goes in a straight line from the past. Yeah.
1: Well, because right now you have Facebook, you have Google, they're in the news and, you know, they're at Congress testifying and whatnot. They are the two big bogeymen that everybody sees. You cannot topple them. They're sucking up all our data and doing all of these nefarious
2: things, et cetera, et cetera. But every empire falls. I already see the signs why these companies are eventually going to be challenged. And it really is the fact that if you don't create enough value for others— you know, eventually they go, well, this is no fun. Let's go some somewhere yeah. else. And I, I think already, you know, you hear, I remember back in the 90s, you know, there was these conversations about where the venture capitalists and the entrepreneurs were saying, well, there's just no point because if we do something really good, Microsoft will put us out of business. You know, Microsoft literally had meetings to dictate to people what were areas that were safe to innovate in. And we're back there, you know, the VCs are having the conversations, you know, well, there's no, nothing you can do except an exit to Facebook or Google, and they're as likely to put you out of business as to, to acquire you. That's just an unstable situation because it, it puts the platform company as the only source of innovation, and the innovators just go somewhere else. You know, I think blockchain is an example that people going, oh, well, let's go do something completely different, biotech, neurotech. These are areas where entrepreneurs are saying, wow, there's still greenfield opportunity. And so we're going to see the next great company in some area that Facebook and Google don't
1: touch. And I think that's what's interesting is that when you talk about what Facebook and Google pay, they're you know harvesting all of these great minds. But if you're truly curious and interested and want to do something different, I imagine you will start to bleed people.
2: First of all, their ability to do that is dependent on their continued ability to grow their stock price. And there will come a point, just like it came with Microsoft, where the growth isn't coming as easily. They're not considered as cool. Some of their top people will leave. They'll start something somewhere else. Oh, see, we're doing the cool thing of the future, and everybody will laugh at it. Uh, yeah, because they, they were like so the, out like touch. the
1: dad at the party who's try, you know doing dad dancing, for example. Yeah. Kind
2: of. I think we're gonna look back and go, oh yeah, they kind of peaked. There will come a point where they're not the cool kids anymore.
1: Yeah, and they won't have that gravitational pull.
2: Th- that, that's right. You know, like I do think that there's some real lessons there. Uh, for example, Google with Android gave a, a wonderful object lesson on how to navigate to a new era that's potentially dominated by another company. You know, as Apple kind of, you know, defined this new smartphone paradigm. There were companies like Microsoft and Nokia that were like, oh, well, here's our answer. The answer is enable others. By enabling an ecosystem that was bigger than them, by giving away uh, you know, a huge part of the value was how they made that transition. What I'm trying to do with my book is to lay out a series of maps for companies that say, hey, guess what? You will be more successful to the extent that you create value for enough other people. And you can't just tell yourself that it's good enough to create value for your users. And of course, that's what Google did with Android, but it's not what they're doing with the web. They're slowly but surely consuming the web in the same way that Microsoft consumed the PC ecosystem. You said there's one guy who looks after the domain name. Not the domain name system, wrote the software. It's called you know, the, the, uh. the software that again, it's there's now multiple pieces of software, but at the time when I did the open source summit, it was basically the Berkeley internet name demon, bind maintained by Paul Vixie at the Internet Software Consortium, designed originally by a guy named Paul Makapetris. But here was this piece of software that everybody depended on. Everybody just took for granted. And I was like, you think that opens you know that free software is defined by the rebels? You're all using this guy's software. Our entire commercial internet is not coming from some company. Of course there were companies who built business models around that. The the registration, and that was also kind of one of the principles that I've I tried to point out was that In the Microsoft era, the software was the point of control. In the Internet era, the data is the point of control. This is one of the earliest examples I gave was, okay, here's this software that's been given away for free, and domain name registration became this incredibly valuable business. Data that was associated, that was created, that was managed in association with that software was the source of value. Throwing it forward
1: when there will be different forms of humans and everything else, One of the companies today you think will be still kind of hyper relevant or powerful or still, you know, doing things.
2: You know, I don't really predict the future. I just notice things (laughs) that are happening in the present and, and try to say, well, if this goes on, people can make change. Look at how Microsoft has reinvented itself. It's certainly entirely conceivable to me that Google and Facebook and Amazon will remain incredibly relevant. If, if I had to call the 21st century, I, I think it's not necessarily going to be an American century. Where is AI going to transform society much more quickly because they have a different set of values around that? Uh, where is synthetic biology most likely to, to you know, be deployed at scale long before it is in the US and Europe? Neurotech, you know, interfacing humans with computers in, in new ways, likely to race ahead. Again, not likely to be in the U.S. and Europe. I think that we're going to see a lot of the technologies that will make us say "WTF" are going to be coming. <laughs> you know, are going to come out. They're increasingly going to come you know, out of China. I don't know that that you know all those "WTF"s are going to be you know happy ones. You know <laughs> already. You know the surveillance state they're building over there is one of those "WTF"s of, of dismay. When does that come here? From a point of view of freedom, it doesn't look good.
1: There's that saying, and I don't know if it's true, but it's kind of one of these wives' tales that if you walk through central London, you're always on camera.
2: Yeah, and I think that's that's true in China as well. And the the, the difference is that in in central London, uh, they don't have AI that's reading all of those, those videos. They don't have a central database of everybody's face. The biggest thing that you have to always stay with you when you are trying to think about the future is prepare to be surprised. Just imagining the things that you can imagine, you will always miss things that in retrospect seem quite obvious. There'll be some breakthrough and then all of a sudden a set of people will go, holy shit, this is what we can do with that. There's so much that's happening around us. The future happens, as as I like to say, gradually, then suddenly. So, do you feel better or worse? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I'd like to thank Tim for letting us kind of peel back a few layers of his brain and kind of dive inside and see what he's thinking about. Um, I have to say the, the bit about the kind of the new sp- various species of humans or subspecies of our species, that's pretty wild. I don't really know how to feel about that. Anyhow. You know the drill. Please do stop into Apple Podcasts, give a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show. So please just take a moment and do that if you like what you're hearing. And of course, you can find me where I always am, in the newspaper, the Sunday Times, online, thetimes.co.uk, on the Twitter, at Danny Fortson. And that is all. Until next week. Bye-bye.